Nico Dorn. Dr. Nicholas Hayes. Oh, that was too much. <laughs> One of my oldest friends. I wanted to start this episode um, with my friend Nico Dorn showing a little bit of a picture that I found earlier today that's a bit of a blast from the past. And wow. I did. Uh, we're probably not going to be able to get this in the camera, but it's a picture of us at Tippecanoe. Throwback. Uh, throwback for sure. For everybody else that's here. What is Tippecanoe? You tell the people. <laughs> well, it's 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 Nico Dorn and I at Tippecanoe where I was a full-time employee for uh, a season or two. And um, really tiny Aiden Dorn. Do you see how small he is? I do. He must have been... Two, three. Yeah, because this is before we moved to Texas. Yeah. So uh, Tippecanoe is a little canoe kayak rental place um, outside of Nashville that I worked for uh, when when Nico and I got clean and sober together around the same time. Well, welcome, man. Welcome. We're really glad you agreed to be on the, our new podcast. I'm super excited to be here. Honored. Yeah. And uh, we've, we've been able to see some of the sites, of course, um, uh, Jay, the marketing team here, some other folks that recognized you on the way in. So it's kind of like coming home maybe a bit for you. Yeah. Now we might have to circle back on that picture. I'm sure we'll get into the past a little bit, but every time I come back to Cumberland Heights, it's a little bit of coming home for yeah. sure. Yeah. And just thinking, I hope we get into it, but thinking about where we've come from in our friendship and where we are today, it's very cool. Yeah. Well, let's start there. Let's start with, because um, I think you have a really unique story and a lot to be proud of, you know, from my perspective, coming from where you've come from um, and all the work you've done and the program that you've built. So um, for those that don't know, Nico Dorn is the executive director of a program in Austin, Texas um, called Alpha Behavioral Health. Correct. Yes. Which has been rebranded. So take us through kind of a little bit of your rebrand. Sure. So um, Alpha Behavioral Health was originally founded as Alpha 180 in 2017. So uh, that's where I went after leaving my position here at Cumberland Heights, which was honestly going really well at the time. Everything was great. I was finishing up graduate school, uh, getting a degree in counseling um, here in Nashville at Vanderbilt. And I met a gentleman named Bob Ferguson, who... Um, Cumberland Heights had kind of held up in high esteem. You know, he's kind of in the circle as one of those guys to look up to. Good pillar in the community, uh, treatment community. And Shout out, Bobby. Shout out, Bobby. Uh, and so I was doing business development, which was um, definitely local to this area. And I somehow was able to squeeze permission for this Colorado trip, which was very much just me wanting to go to Colorado um, as a business development trip. And uh, went out to Colorado, visited Jay Walker Lodge, which Bob Ferguson is the founder of. And um, so that program, like most residential programs, kind of takes you out of your addiction, puts you in the middle of recovery, and uh, helps you get sober and does a great job with it. But Bobby felt like a missing link, especially for their younger uh, clients, was the rest of their life. And specifically going back to college, uh, having a career, having a future. Um, and I can get into my story in more detail, but, uh, because of my own experience, I was really passionate about young adult treatment and specifically helping them have an education, go back to school, making recovery cool, making recovery fun. Um, and so Bobby and I connected on this trip in Colorado over a cup of coffee. And at that time I'm, 
I still am just some dude. Uh, and I'm here meeting with the CEO of Jaywalker Lodge, this pillar. Uh, and so I was really honored. And for whatever reason, he uh, saw some potential in me. And we throw, threw this idea back and forth for probably over a year, maybe two years. Um, and so then by the time I was finishing up school, he was ready to launch this program and uh, brought me on. And I moved out to Austin, Texas, where we're located. And we founded, uh, like I said, in late 2017 as a young men's transitional living program not very clinically sophisticated at all. Um, very much, uh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna post up. We're going to be in the shadow of the university of Texas. People will flock to it cause it's cool and, uh, all that stuff and not too much of a business plan behind it and have been successful with that project. And over the last six years have developed and evolved. And so, um, here recently we've gone through this rebrand away from, uh, well, not away from, but expanding on Alpha 180, which is that young men's transitional living to now Alpha Behavioral Health, which includes in-network clinical services, outpatient services, uh, services for families, teens, even females um, as well. So those are all some new avenues for us we're really excited about. And it all kind of centers around that same concept I said at the beginning, which is making recovery cool, making it fun, building it into your life, uh, and helping you get excited about your future. That's kind of our whole thing. Yeah. A couple things about Alpha Behavioral Health and the original program, Alpha 180, is quite literally in the shadow of the university. So you, so you Two blocks of, from the University of Texas yeah. in a uh, former Phi Delta Theta fraternity house, <laughs> I might add. It, which is a great space, honestly, for, uh, you know, not necessarily a fraternity, but like that style of property where there's yeah. lots of like hangout space, there's an outdoor courtyard, and sort of, I guess what was formerly maybe some like residential areas upstairs are now these offices. Yeah. It's a great property. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, now that's been my world. So I've normalized it. But if you think back uh, to even when we were founding or a little before the idea of putting people in early recovery in an environment like that would have been considered, you know, potentially uh, hazardous. Mm -hmm. um, and we've really found over time that, um, well, for one, the research supports going back to school and having that structure as a young person in early recovery, but also just um, integrating your recovery experience into real life, like not having to be uh, sent off somewhere. And so that's really important for us, for our clients, especially those that are living with us. They feel like I'm a college student. I'm having a, a normal college experience. I'm surrounded by other people my own age. Um, and we see every day that that doesn't increase relapse rates. It actually improves the recovery um, and certainly qualitatively improves their recovery because they really are having the experience that they should have as a young person. Um, and so that's really important to the experience in the program too. Yeah. Beautiful program. And um, I remember maybe touring, was it like the first day you were open? Do you remember that? Well, or the second day when I flew down, because I, I lived in Lubbock for a, a long time, seven years. And I think that this was like right the weekend that you were opening. I just have this memory of being there on site. Could have been, man. It all kind of blurs together. It's uh, I feel like I got shot through a cannon. Anyone who's gone through kind of startup culture, it's been quite an experience. But But yeah, man, you've been there every step of the way. So let's talk about our shared experience Related to collegiate recovery because it connects. And mm -hmm. so for those that might be familiar with Alpha 180 and not so familiar with collegiate recovery communities, 
right, which they're broadly known as. I wonder if you can kind of speak to that um, and share as much as you want to share related to our um, cool experience in Lubbock, Texas. Guns up. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I'll kind of weave it in my story a little bit. Uh, pertains to both of us, but you know, my addiction definitely got in the way of my academic career, to say the least. And I think I grew up with um, family making education important to me. And so, in the back of my mind, as um, as academics became less and less a part of my world, and my addiction progressed, in the back of my head, I kind of always knew like college is supposed to be an option or education is important or you're capable of things like that. Like I had these messages, but my addiction eventually got to the point where I no longer believed that those types of things were possible for me. And by the time I got sober, I was a high school dropout, no GED, mm-hmm. no nothing. Um, and you and I were living together here in Nashville. Uh, you might've been working at Tippecanoe. I don't, I don't know, but, um, but we were very early either on that or the funeral home, which we don't have to talk about. We won't get into that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the people are curious now though. So, uh, anyways, um, and you mostly were the one looking at going back to school cause you'd had a little bit of college experience and your dad worked in that world. So he was pushing education and, um, somewhere along the way we found out about the Texas tech university collegiate recovery program, which is kind of considered, uh, the pillar and mm-hmm. of programs, um, which has been around about 35 years now. And so, uh, we went out to visit it. And, um, Mm -hmm. so a collegiate recovery program in a nutshell is a, you know, a cluster of services, um, for a student population, in this case, students in recovery, kind of the same way that you'd have, um, you know, support services for any other student organization. And it just makes, um, makes it easier to exist on a college campus being one of those students. So at Texas Tech, that means they have an entire, you know, 10,000 square foot plus building with advisors and meetings and events throughout the week, um, some specialty education tracks. Like there's a whole very robust array of services uh, for students in recovery. At other college campuses, it might just be um, a couple of weekly meetings or uh, a full-time or part-time staff member that's just kind of dedicated to that student organization. So there's um, this movement of collegiate recovery programs has kind of spread across the nation and, and, and depending on the school and various, uh, various amounts of, um, you know, development, uh, within those programs. So, um, so you and I went out and visited this Texas tech university program. You, did you go once without me? And then I went with you. I don't remember that. I remember going I together like you, with Tom Bennett. I, I feel like you may be were like, you heard about it first and you were like telling me to think about it. And somehow we ended up on this trip together to go visit with Tom Bennett. I think your dad might've been on that trip. John Maxwell. John Maxwell, University of Alabama folks. And uh, a few others that were in our group. Yeah, we a went couple to that, of other young people. That we went to that Thursday night celebration meeting. Yeah. We met with Dr. Kitty Harris, who's right. a dear friend of ours. Yep. So, I mean- do you remember that for meeting? My, for, that's wanna, what I was going to say. For yeah. my version of this story would definitely be like those pivotal experiences of walking onto a college campus, walking into a building, seeing people my age with years of recovery. Right. Uh, makes me emotional. Like I had never conceived of that. Like a whole bunch of us together, like doing life, doing stuff um, and going into that celebration meeting on Thursdays and the rooms packed 
and you're you're sitting on a college campus, which to me is not a place that you can talk openly about being in recovery, right? Um, and so we got to meet with Dr. Kitty Harris, the director, and um, I told her my story. You know, my mm-hmm. son from that picture would have been two at that time. I told her, you know, this it's real. It's really great what you guys have going on here for those that can do it. I can't. Here's why. Told her all the reasons why, and. She was just like, if you want to go to college, you can, like, we can make that happen. Um, And it was a turning point in my recovery. And that experience of thinking I knew what was possible and then having that flipped in one day, just being like, wow, like if, if I can overcome this hurdle that feels insurmountable, that means all this other stuff could potentially happen. That was so life-changing for me and my recovery because it just expanded my view of what was possible. And so I got to stop talking, but that whole idea is what Alpha 180 was founded on, is we want to show guys, you think you might know what this is going to be about. We're going to surprise you with how much better it actually is. And we're going to surprise you with what you are actually capable of in your life. And that's why we're two blocks from the University of Texas. Yeah, beautiful story. I am proud of you, my friend. Thanks. I remember this meeting because I, I, for some reason, I feel like it was you and me in Dr. Harris's office, maybe with Johnny. I don't, I don't feel right. like it was anybody else. I don't know why, but I remember both of us maybe being a bit anxious. Well, let me back up. I remember us flying into Lubbock and being like, where are we? Because <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever been to Lubbock, it's um, on a cap rock and it's very high desert. And so there, there quite literally are uh, no hills, and and just it's it's a bit jarring if you've never sort of spent any time in that area in West Texas, which is a beautiful, incredible area. But sort of showing up on the a lot of dirt feels like you're flying into the yeah, desert or yeah, something. And, yeah, yeah. And so we show up, and and I, I can't remember if it was that day or the next day, but we go to this 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 building as Nico was describing on Texas Tech's campus. And the first thing that kind of struck me was it's a beautiful building. Like it looks new on the outside of the building. It says, you know, the center for the study of addiction and recovery and big letters, like any other building might be named the business school or whatever. And I remember being like, Oh, there's the, there's a big circle, um, kind of courtyard fountain circle area in the middle of Texas Tech's campus. And, you can literally see the center from the middle of campus. So this wasn't a program that was sort of on a satellite campus or separate from the maybe heart of the university. I remember thinking yeah. like, wow, this is interesting that it's it's right there. Not only is it right there, but later learning the president's office, you know, looks out onto the courtyard of the center, mm-hmm. right? So there's, there's quite an investment of the university. Right. And I remember meeting with Kitty and you – and me both, because I was a college dropout and had been at been at school in college for two years and had gotten less than 20 credits and um, did not feel like I had value to offer or was a worthy investment. So both of us were kind of matched in that. And I, re- I remember her sort of leaning over and saying, we want to invest in you two, right? And if y'all want to apply and if you want to try to make this happen – um, will support you in that. And you're right. It was like a different, there was a, it was a shot of hope 
you know, in a way. And then we went to the celebration meeting and people were happy and, um, in multiple years of recovery, it was just a different environment that we had not been exposed to. Certainly that I wasn't used to having attended a, a, you know, a, a large Southeastern conference university that has just a different culture. Well, it's just so contradictory to what, you know, I think still a lot of society feels related to addiction. You know, there's a lot of stigma and not only is a college campus, um, not ignoring an addiction problem, they're actually shining a spotlight on the recovery side of it, which is, you know, so admirable and so directly related to someone like Dr. Kitty Harris's work, which is so often the case that there's an individual kind of behind the scenes for many years grinding it out to make those types of things happen. And, um, and for me, that was probably my first experience where being a person in recovery, like allowed me an opportunity that I wouldn't have had if I weren't in recovery, at least how I experienced it. Like going to meetings and my relationships were getting better and my life was full and I was very happy, but I had never found myself in a position where I was like, wow, I wouldn't even be getting to do this without my recovery. So those types of experiences are, that was when I decided this was a really a long-term thing. I'm in, I'm sticking around, you know, was cool stuff like that happening. Yeah. I, I just want to say something else about the the center experience specifically at Texas Tech. It's and Nico knows this, but you know it's the most successful extracurricular group you can be a part of at Texas Tech. And and here's what I mean specifically: it has the highest graduation rate, and it has the highest GPA out of any group that you can sort of join and be a part of. The interesting thing about that is they also those kids in that program also have the most felonies. Yeah. Out of any and the group. least likely to get into the university without the support of that program. Correct. And so there is this exponential impact that that program has on on individuals' lives. And I, it, there's a way, it's immeasurable because you and I going to classes and the thousands of other individuals that have gone through that program and going to classes, they're having an impact in other students' lives, right, indirectly. Whereas, you know, you're in a group you know, doing a group assignment in some class, biology or history of jazz or whatever it is. And they're learning, oh, this guy named Nico is in our group and he's in recovery. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is what that means for me. Oh my gosh, I've never been exposed to somebody who might have that lived experience and is young or whatnot. Maybe that changes their perception about their assumptions related to addiction. And those little seeds, I think of hope are really healthy for a university culture. And so I remember um, I mean, I was part of the center for seven years. <laughs> Still uh, impresses me that you lived in Lubbock that long. Yeah, and I, I really loved it. And I, I um, by accident, ended up getting three degrees back to back to back, um, really in support of the culture that the center creates. And and their investment, it's almost like it reminds me of some recovery language that, that you and I use, right? That uh, lost dreams awaken and new possibilities arise. And I think for both of us, this was not even a dream that we had. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was not a lost dream. This was a totally new dream about um, what college could be like for us. And I, I was actually talking, I, I talked to Kitty this week, earlier this week, and it's interesting. I didn't think about this, but I was telling her, you know, just how grateful I was for that experience in that seven years because it really was in some ways a really robust extended care program. Mm-hmm. Because you and I were quite confident at, we think we both had about a year of recovery mm-hmm. when we joined the center and we were really excited about recovery, <laughs> if you remember. We were, we had it figured out. 
That's right. That's what I mean. Not that we're not excited, but but we were um, we had the answers to all the problems. <laughs> and uh, I was telling Kitty, you know, in hindsight, we did not. <laughs> and how grateful and thankful I was to be in a community that allowed us to continue to grow. And um, <clears throat> I'll tell one story, and then I'll I, I want to hear more from you. But I remember when we showed up and we uh, we got that apartment together. Mm-hmm. in the ULOFs across from the university and we're excited to be there. And I remember at the time I called my sponsor who might've been um, John B. And oh. I remember asking, I don't, I, we were like moving in and we had orientation, like the university orientation, you know, where there's like thousands of students and we had just gotten back and I was feeling really out of place, which is common for somebody who experiences addiction. I was feeling really apart from um, not very confident. And I called my spot. I was like, I don't think I can, John, I don't know if I can do this. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, do what you've done for a year and a half in Nashville. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, show up early, stay late, sit close to the front, take notes and ask for help. And then the other thing you should do is on the first day of every class, they give you this thing. It's called a syllabus. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And John's <laughs> like, here's a secret. If you take that document and you do everything that it says in the timelines that it says to do them, you'll get straight A's. And I'm like, nah, I don't don't know if that's the case. Turns out, Nico, that's the case. And that was both of our experiences. Put a little effort in, show up to class, take a couple notes and you're pretty much got it done. Yeah. But it's, it's important to note like just the mental barrier of thinking that you're not capable of something like that would have been enough for me to never try. Right. You know? And what's cool about, especially Kitty Harris, but collegiate recovery programs in general, I think do a really good job of like, they give you the space to be a mess. You know, like we were young, uh, we were not, (laughs) I mean, I I wish I could look back on how I was acting because I felt put together for sure. Felt like I had some stuff figured out, but we were a mess and we probably said a lot of crazy stuff and upset some people and um, I think a lot of people just observed that process. They're just like, we're just going to let them figure it out. And, but along the way, like saw something bigger in us that we couldn't see. And, and mm. like you said, like genuinely invested in us. Cause, um, you know, I ended up leaving Texas tech and getting my son back, um, which was my kind of main priority at the time, but you stuck around. And if I recall, like you weren't interested in research, you weren't planning for, postgraduate degrees, nothing like that. Nope. Um, but because of that environment, like you started to believe that that was possible and started to want that and started to see this future for yourself. And so, you know, my career, I was kind of slowly growing, um, and you were just there grinding it out at, in school, but were able to see this much bigger vision of the impact that you could make and so that's just one other byproduct that's of right. collegiate recovery programs is like they're, they're, they help breed hope, but that hope turns into real change a lot of times in the treatment and recovery world. Like what you have done, it would be un, untrue to take away from the fact that like you're going to have a huge impact in your career in a positive way because this place helped you believe that that was possible. Um, and I just think it's really important to to recognize how massive that impact is like, um, yeah. So, and I, and I had my own version of the same thing where like it truly changed the trajectory of my life. 
Absolutely. I mean, that atmosphere of recovery that's created in those communities, that's why I'm so proud of what you've done with Alpha 180, because it, it is really founded in that spirit. Mm -hmm. And just to circle back on Bobby Ferguson, your boss and our great friend, you know, we both first met Bobby. Well, I first met Bobby at a Association of uh, Recovery and Higher Education Conference mm -hmm. in Lubbock. And we had no idea who Bobby was at that time. We were not working. Well, we might've been working for a small treatment center in that area, which is a whole other story. <laughs> um, our first job given to us by Mandy Baker, shout out Mandy. Yeah. Who now works at BRC. But um, we met Bobby. And for those that know Bobby, I mean, Bobby showed up to this conference with, you know, a polo and flip-flops. Board shorts and flip-flops. Board shorts and was unapologetically himself as he always is, which is accessible and personable and wants to understand what's going on in your life and just got connected with him as somebody who was passionate about recovery and was like, oh, he was like, yeah, I help support a program in Colorado. And we we're like, oh, cool, man. You know, like that was literally the extent of him identifying himself. And it wasn't until later that we're like, wait, Bobby, Bobby is this huge pillar in the private addiction treatment world and kind of making those connections is a beautiful thing um, that I just wanted to celebrate about him. So you, your story is so unique, Nico, in that you did come back for your son, um, taking care of him, moving back to Nashville. Can you talk about, because you, you continued your education experience, can you talk about a little bit of the differences and the challenges or the strengths of coming back and, and leaving the collegiate recovery environment and kind of introducing yourself in an educational arena that did not have those resources. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that I can't put like a super positive spin on that period of life in so far as it was very challenging. It was very full. It was very busy. I was a single dad with a young son. Um, I was trying to balance my recovery. I was back in a city I had gotten sober in. So I knew people, but now I was a few years down the road and trying to manage that being a dad, being a student and working at the same time. Um, and I think like the fuel for my fire was just passion. I was just so excited about what I was doing. I, I wanted to, you know, I was passionate about collegiate recovery. I thought I might want to be a director of one of those programs one day. And so, and then, and then of course, as a dad to my son, just wanting to provide him a future that was very much a driver for my education. So that kept me fueled, but managing all of that was really difficult. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, I don't know, I think I'm a little bit unique in being resilient through pretty crazy circumstances. I look back and I'm not really sure how I managed all of that sometimes. I'm just being honest. Um, but I did exactly what you said a minute ago, which is showing up early, staying late and trying to, to boil things down into manageable chunks. And it very much felt like I was going through school, uh, just trying to get through. And that was very different than being in a community environment where I had friends around me and it was really, you know, supportive. And it was a big aspect of my recovery at Texas Tech. Whereas back in Nashville, going to the school that I was at for undergrad, um, I had a great experience, but it wasn't social. It wasn't, you know, supporting my recovery necessarily. It was just about getting that degree. So, and you were very successful because, as I remember, you graduated Lipscomb University, top of your class. I did four point I did, yeah. Which is hard and to do. Three years for undergrad. <laughs> 
Uh, I want to tell one story too, because just about the spirit of collegiate recovery. And then I want to ask you about your Vanderbilt because you had an immense impact at, at Vanderbilt University. But I remember you and me. Th- so when you join a collegiate recovery community at Texas Tech, um, they end up scheduling your classes together. And it's a unique experience because you can get, get to kind of study together and you get to sort of, you know where I'm going with this, like sort of traverse different experiences and um, together with your group instead of maybe being in classes where you don't know anybody. It's just sort of a good little first step. And I remember very early on, you know, one of the classes we took, it was Nico and myself and then some dear friends of ours to this day, Austin Brown, uh, uh, Dr. Austin Brown now. Oh. And uh, Murray Sandlin. Yeah. If you remember. And we very quickly sort of like, and they were non more non-traditional students that we were just in that they were a little bit older and we were uh, also non-traditional. We were just a little bit older than a, than a regular um, 18 year old. I think we were both 20 at the time, but I remember getting very like competitive <laughs> and we took this uh, psychology. Do you remember this psychology 101 class? Yeah. It's coming back to me with Kyle Schindler. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, shout out to you, Kyle, if you ever listened to this. I hope you're doing well. I you hope he's don't. heard an interview with you because you've mentioned I him speak so of it. This is like a <laughs> monumental experience. And um, so this basic class, and I remember we were like, we were all studying together and we were like taking this seriously. And I had never studied like I had studied ever before in my life. I mean, we were like all hours of the night, like for this first exam, you know, first time back in college, I'm like, I'm going to make a 100, <laughs> you know, like, and, uh, so it's us four in this class. And I remember we got our exams back and it's this like very, uh, stereotypical, like get your exam back where they like give, they like fold it down yeah. and mm-hmm. set it on your desk. And we're all sitting next to each other with like the little like wooden thing that you pull up, you know, and everybody's kind of like peeking to see like what they made. And I remember like, I made like a 97 and I was like, yeah, 97. <laughs> I was like, surely these guys, you know, B plus 91, you know, like I, I want to win. And, uh, I remember like you, you know, you had a little smirk on your face. Murray did and, and Austin did, but Austin had like a different smirk. And memory, if, if memory serves me correctly, you and Austin got like a 105. My memory is I got like a 101 or something. And then because there was an extra credit question and then Austin got like a 104 and there was no 104 option. It was just your answer is so good. Yes. We're going to give you extra I was points. So, so mad. much better than Nick's yeah. three points. <laughs> I was so mad because Kyle had written like a narrative on his exam with like a smiley face at the end about like how well written his responses to the exam were. And I remember you and I being like, that can never happen again. So yeah. it's just an example of, um, kind of that that difference in academic flavor that's created around um, uh, folks in recovery that sort of drives them to succeed. And more often than not, being a part of those programs really helped people break out of those old um, narratives or parts of themselves that told them that they can't do this or that they're less equipped than other students. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Um, so I just want to just building off of that a little, I mean – you know, what I was talking about being a person that just didn't think I was capable of stuff like that. We can just make the, we can extrapolate and assume that Murray felt that way. You felt that way. Austin felt that way, but you get us together and you get a little competition going and it's like, now we're 
lifting ourselves up and lifting each other up. And, and then literally something as simple as that test grade, like our first test in school where you know you're going to fail, you know mm-hmm. you're bad at school, you know that you can't you know remember things as well because your brain's messed up from drugs. Like those are the types of thoughts that you have in your head. And then you get a good grade, like it's powerful. And mm. so, you know, that process built on itself, but it was really the starting point of so much more that happened. Because even the, the healthy competition thing we've carried, you know, almost 15 years later, uh, comparing our grades and seeing how the other guy's doing in a really healthy way. Um, and those guys do too. Like I still talk to Murray from time to time. Like th- those people, I think the power of those little experiences and having them together and inspiring one another. Um, it's not hard. You don't have to look very far to realize like, oh, that made an impact because these people are still mm. out there doing that. So, Yeah, absolutely. And there's anyway. hundreds of those stories that are just really special and unique. And I just want to say just in, in so much gratitude for those that worked really hard, you know, Tom Kimball, Vince Sanchez, George Kamiski, Karen Garbowski, Karen Garbas- Garbowski, uh, Kitty Harris and, and Carl Anderson, who started that program at Texas Tech, even before that, we don't really know him. Like they worked tirelessly to create that environment. Something else that was unique is we got our, I alluded to it. We got our first job at a treatment center in that area. And that treatment center was, was really connected to the CRC and it created Mm this, um, unique environment to sort of be a part of the center, but also maybe like begin to get exposed in what it's like to work in a treatment center. And that really was the beginning of both of us working in this field over the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a beautiful thing how that changes because a lot, oftentimes somebody, we were like RAs on the weekend. And then a lot, oftentimes somebody would become a counselor or a therapist or work in business development. And then just from there kind of continue to grow. And I saw that with you moving back to Nashville finishing up your degree at Lipscomb University, top of your class, and then deciding, I wonder if I can. And and I, I'm so proud of you, Nico, because without the support of collegiate recovery, you were still um, blazing a trail that wasn't accessible to what I had, the privilege I had to, to the community at Texas Tech where those roads had been blazed, right? People had done that, that you know, gone finished an undergrad degree and then gone on to get a master's or whatever, because you then took it upon yourself of, you know what, I want to dream really big. And I remember talking to you about this, about like, I wonder if I can get in Vanderbilt, Mm -hmm. you know, and that process of applying and admitting, getting accepted and the beautiful work you did to sort of help support and start a collegiate recovery program that exists now at Vanderbilt. I wonder if you can kind of speak to that experience too, while working- here at Cumberland Heights, I think. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Working, um, we established the young men's program at that time, which went from a one hour a week, young people's oriented group to now being its fully standalone program within Cumberland Heights. So we had that going on, which was really cool. Um, I mean, I have to back up a little because, uh, the first time I applied to Vanderbilt was coming out of Texas Tech and I did not get in. And, then moved here and Vanderbilt did have a collegiate recovery program, um, largely, uh, you know, on paper, I guess at that point, like it had some stuff going, but had been struggling a little bit. Um, so I was really excited about the possibility of helping build that up. Um, but also 
looked at Vanderbilt as this completely insurmountable mountain to try to get into. Um, and, you know, to what I was saying earlier, that that us and them view that people in recovery can sometimes have of just, you know, that other people can go to schools like that. Like other people can have experiences like that. Like even though I was building up some self-efficacy, I still really was nervous and scared about uh, thinking that I just couldn't do certain things. Um, and so anyways, uh, I took it upon myself to get to know the people working in the recovery services over there. They had some open meetings. I started attending those, um, just kind of trying to make myself a little known in that community. Um, and, but seeing myself as a student, um, and it sounds silly, but I would literally go sit on campus in a, on a bench by myself and just be like, you're going to go to school here one day. Like they don't know, but you will. Um, and just kind of feeding that hope and having people around me that didn't shut me down or question me. They said, you will, you can. Um, and then obviously putting in the work to get the grades, you can't skip that part. Um, but ended up applying uh, another time, this time for graduate school and, and was able to get in, um, and teamed up with, uh, Catherine Jodos Cuthbert, who I, I don't mean to say the paper, the program was on paper. I mean, there was a lot of hard work being done, but I think us getting together, um, and me just kind of bringing some ideas and some experience with her expertise and the support that the university was providing really helped us grow quickly. Um, and there's a lot of steps a collegiate recovery program has to go through and they have to kind of decide for themselves, like, what do we want to offer and how do we want to position it? Um, and so we kind of figured that out and developed an application process and did a lot of outreach, put some events together, uh, brought a group of students to the Association of Recovery and Higher Education Conference, which gives them a chance to see how much bigger this is, um, and just recruited, you know, got students to come. And I think what kind of happened during those years that she and I were working together is uh, just a little fire was sparked, you know, and that's kind of where it starts. Like, on a s somewhat smaller scale, like that thing I experienced, like uh, of seeing what's possible, like the students would come, the other Vanderbilt students, and then they would see that and they would get inspired and they would invite more people. Um, and so it grew pretty quickly. And I don't, I don't know what to say about accomplishments or anything, but we had a, a really cool um, little group of us that went through school together. And, and it was the difference between, feeling alone on campus, like I described mm -hmm. earlier, because if I'm, you know, within my graduate studies, um, it was still very isolating, like at that age in graduate school, like people go out drinking and hanging out and I, I still felt alone. And so I had this, I had this, uh, this community, um, that we all had different majors. We were all different ages. We were all doing different things. I think I was the only dad, but those were my people and we were doing it together. And, and Vanderbilt's been able to continue to grow off of that, uh, momentum. And now I would say is kind of the premier, what do they, they call themselves a selective university, the premier selective university collegiate recovery program in the nation. So, yeah, you know, it's important to remember, like in my experience that education oftentimes is much more about the process than the content. For sure. And when I hear you talk about your story and your experiences, I see that so much. The classes are one thing. The textbooks are one thing. You know, taking these exams, learning about 
educational psychology or systems theory or what have you, or just, you know, from an undergrad perspective, biology 101, whatever it is, it's so much more, it has the opportunity to teach you so much more about how to live a successful life. That's really what that's about. How to work through problems, how to work in a group assignment, how to ask for help, you know, how to, how to persevere through lots of different deadlines because school can be very stressful and so can recovery. And so can for anybody at any age of recovery, building a new identity that maybe is divorced from whatever your use behavior was situated in is that that's where collegiate recovery is really special is it's as simple as creating an environment and a space and a place for folks of, from all walks of life to find a home with each other that might not be at the meeting house across town, mm-hmm. right? And that they can share in um, similar experiences of, hey, this is having to figure out financial aid can be stressful, right? Um, having to work with a difficult professor can be stressful. Um, having failing we haven't talked about that how important it is to learn how to fail you know and make a mistake and say i I might need to retake this class or i really missed on my preparation with this exam is so important and i think that's what prepares a lot of these individuals that experience that environment to be successful beyond um what they otherwise might have planned which is, is a part of what i think makes alpha a really special space and place for those kids who might not otherwise participate in a community like that. And honestly, the odds will be stacked against them. Cause I think about if we would have gone back to college without collegiate recovery, certainly we would have been motivated and excited, but we would have had both hands tied behind our back trying to navigate in isolation, at least without the vision of collegiate recovery yeah. and how it's done. Right. It would have been a dangerous place. Cause you're right. It's a lot of, I mean, my experience at the school I was at before, University of Alabama, is it, it, it's a lot of drinking every day that ends in Y. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it can be that, um, or it can just be really isolating um, and overwhelming. And I think a lot of people in recovery would be kind of non-traditional students, or and, and I think that stops a lot of people from pursuing education just because it's so hard to try to do it on your own. That's like, right. Um, and they don't have that that vision of it being possible. And I think that stops a lot of people and it's, it's a shame. And and it was a privilege that, that we were able to, you know, be exposed to, to a community like that. Yeah. So talk about alpha behavioral health today. I know last night we were kind of trying to bring in a conversation that we had a little bit yesterday about maybe your vision about how things are changing specifically Nico around how we need to better support kind of the changing demographic from an acuity perspective and also an expectation perspective about what really drives long lasting change. Cause I think we're learning more as a field about what that might be and how that should be packaged. Yeah. I mean, I have to preface with, I have ideas and thoughts and I have no idea how things will play out or what the future holds. Um, but you know, I think we've all been pretty aware that our acute care, like episodic approach to addiction treatment is is not ideal and that people need long-term support. And like you mentioned, a collegiate recovery pro- program could kind of be seen as a, you know, outpatient extended care that lasts for years. Um, and so at Alpha Behavioral Health, uh, you know, we're, we're transitional programming. So most of our clients are coming to us after residential treatment. 
Um, and then they can stay with us for, you know, an extended period of time. Average is like four months, but, you know, maybe six to nine months or so. And in that amount of time, if you just aver- uh, imagine kind of the average 20-year-old that's getting sober, like think of how much they have to uh, accomplish or manage in those years of their life. Like taking addiction away entirely, you still have you know developmental uh, milestones. You have you know autonomy from your family. You usually moved somewhere new, off to school, whatever the case may be. So like even under great circumstances, it's a time of tremendous change. And then you add in uh, recovery. And for my clients, you know, they're learning how to um, clean their room, how to show up somewhere on time, how to fill out a job application. And so I just say that to say that uh, bridging someone through that first year takes an exorbitant amount of resources and time and energy for most people. Um, and so we have definitely recognized that problem. And even even though our program provides a lot of support, like it could even provide more, you could always do more. Um, and so our shift, I guess I should say also, you know, relapses happen. Um, Mm -hmm. people have disruptions. It's not common to go off to residential treatment and boom, you're done. Um, and so we would have clients coming through our, through our program and generally progressing in a really positive direction. And then they maybe have a slip and because the way that our system is set up, well, that's a return to detox or a return to residential. It's a major disruption in their continuum of care. But at the same time, like they're not appropriate for our level of care and that would be disruptive till the milieu to keep them. So that's not responsible. Um, But how can we kind of account for the fact that people are going to have bumps in the road and they're going to have lots of different scenarios and uh, be able to afford different price points and all of these factors. And so I've become passionate about a more community-based model with flexible lines of service so that people can uh, plug into those services at the you know, dosage and, and period of time that they need them when they need them and then leave and come back or utilize them in different ways. And so that looks like uh, you know, in-network outpatient services that people can access with their insurance at different levels of care individual therapy, which we've talked about, like mm-hmm. if there's a positive from COVID, people are getting therapy. Like people will go do private practice therapy, are more and more comfortable with it. Um, so, you know, p- providing therapeutic services, we provide free groups at night. And so rather than having this relatively high barrier of entry where it's like you you move across the country, you live with us, you're here 24 seven. And if you mess up, you might have to start over mm-hmm. um, to you know, there's, there's options. Uh, the transitional living is very much an option for those that need it, but there's other ways to plug in. Um, and I think that that is a way to help more people enter a recovery lifestyle, because if we're being honest, no one wants to say they're an addict. No one wants to admit that they have an addiction problem. And the idea of admitting that and being sent off is, is terrifying. And so specifically with young people and with families, if we can just kind of, you know, maybe, maybe enter, uh, the picture a little bit sooner on, in their addiction, uh, experience, then maybe we can arrest that a little bit earlier in the process. Maybe they can get all of these elements of a recovery lifestyle kind of built in, um, to what they were already doing. And so, I think that's a a more realistic future of how services can be provided. Um, It doesn't apply to everyone, but it applies to our model. And 
I just, uh, in my mind that just expands the recovery world in general. Like how can we make it easier to access? How can we make it um, right. more attractive? How can we make it, you know, cause it, it's a shame when someone needs help, wants help, but either doesn't know where to go or doesn't want to do what's necessary to receive it. And I see that a lot where the way that the system is set up, um, that's right. And that's a whole nother podcast. Uh, you know, we'll prevent people from accepting help, you know, just cause it's hard and it's scary. And so, so anyways, we're just trying to make it as attractive and easy to utilize as possible. Um, yeah, we were talking about it on the way in just as a function of barriers. Mm-hmm. So a couple comments, you're right. I don't know if it's because of COVID or, or associated with it in some ways, but there's so many people in our lives that we know that are in private practice that are busy. I mean, right. almost everybody I know when they tell me they're in private practice, they're full. Right. Right. It's very or odd. Or they left their job in a treatment center to start private practice. Right. And here in Nashville, as an example, you know, if you go on psychology today, I mean, it's just pages and pages of folks, right, that are available. And so I think that, and I think that the public or individuals of all ages, all walks of life are looking for wellness support of some kind. And mm-hmm. We do know as a field, just in terms of maybe the traditional addiction treatment field, that it is very episodic and it's very emergent in that when you're in an emergency, right, when your life is falling apart, right, these treatment centers are built to provide services at that time, right? The inverse of that is really, wait a minute, I'm becoming aware that maybe from a well-being perspective, I could use some help. And might I be able to access care, what we would call at a lower level, mm-hmm. right? At, at, at a lower level of care to help support and color in between those lines and maybe almost in a prevention perspective, sort of catapult somebody along a journey that otherwise might avoid those emergent type services. I think it's a great vision of where I think a lot of the players in our field need to start considering of how we might be able to have a larger impact, right? Because if if the mission of our organizations are centered in supporting individuals who experience substance use disorders, we should try to build out those areas of our practices where we can be accessible for a collegiate recovery experience, for an IOP checkup episode, or for just what we would consider is, is, is OP or private practice that might be able to help me from a career building perspective or. I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of organizations are doing this, but you, you know, it's unique to the provider, but everyone can kind of look at like, what are, what are the resources we have? What's the infrastructure that we ha- already have in place and how could we utilize that in like practical innovative and flexible ways to just provide more value to the people we serve. So, you know, just like a basic example, it's like you can be in our IOP, but if your son, the the client happens to relapse, like the family still comes to the support group, the family still gets the workshop and, you know, whatever the case may be. But, you know, cause that's real recovery. Like it's going to be ups and downs and you're going to plug in and, and, and maybe retreat and, and you need a community around you while, while you're doing that. So I, I think having, being nimble and flexible and, you know, just another like very basic example that we were talking about earlier is, you know, you have therapists working within your organization, like maybe they can provide some individual counseling on the side, uh, 
in the building that they already work in or whatever, you know, whatever. So there's examples like that. I think that people are looking at a little bit, you know, through a different lens now since COVID. And and I think for the most part, that's a good thing. Can you speak to barriers and examples between, as we were talking about before, it seems to be that behavioral health, specifically treatment centers, have a lot of barriers to enter. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you consider maybe how general medicine has gotten really good at, oh, you need an appointment? Here you go. Schedule that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. there's. I mean, there's obviously a lot of directions that you can go with that. I mean, there's a lot of socioeconomic and uh, kind of cultural background barriers that we see. Um, but just kind of, if you just think about ease of access, uh, logistic ease of access, and you're going to see a doctor, like you said, and you know, you call them, they have a, a patient portal, they have you upload your insurance card and they send you a text with your appointment and then you show up. Um, you know, a lot of times with addiction treatment and some of this is necessary, but very long screening process, relatively invasive screening process, um, a lot of anxiety in the family system throughout that whole thing. Uh, finances, we can t- talk about that a little bit more. Um, and it can be drawn out and it's confusing. Um, you know, most people are not familiar with the different levels of care and what's out there. So educating them about that while they're in crisis, I think, is really challenging. Um, and then I've become really passionate about kind of financial accessibility And our transitional living program became, you know, a higher ticket item because the clients that we were serving needed a lot of services. And so the program got more expensive and and more complex. And and that's what these guys need. Um, But then it makes it, you know, inaccessible to a lot of people because of the price tag. And so for us, um, that has looked like how can we utilize the insurance system as it exists to get some coverage, you know, uh, providing more in-network options. Um, and just like I said before, kind of being flexible. And I think, um, I think people are familiar with an insurance and cash kind of payment model. Like we want you know, just the general public, like we want to utilize our insurance. We do want quality services. Um, and we want them to not dramatically interfere with our life. So if you're, I think it's a good practice for providers to kind of look at like how are, how are services structured in a different model? Like if you look at hospitality, if you look at medical or anything, like so many things in our society are becoming automated, uh, personalized, uh, whatever. So, um, so I don't know, there's a lot of different directions you can drill down on that, but I think as an industry, we kind of need to look at like, are we keeping up with best practices that other industries are doing? Are we providing a understandable intake experience that someone's going to, they've done this before receiving other services? Does it, is it prompt, um, and Hmm. affordable? So yeah, the opposite of that is maybe an organization that has no barriers, right? You call and you get online with the admissions team and they schedule you right away, right? At some residential site. But I think you're talking about a balance between the two Mm -hmm. where it's maximum access and upon engagement and treatment services at some level of care, 
better determining what might be a fit at the appropriate time, right? An example is if you go see your doctor and you're checking in, right, and you see the doctor for, you know, a sore throat, well, you might also have some other issue that's discovered within that office visit that then you get sort of referred to another specialist or a follow-up the next day, what have you. And I think in behavioral health, it's a really interesting conversation that I don't hear too many people talking about just in terms of best practices associated with other treatment sciences, you know, of how we can remove some of those barrier, barriers safely while giving patients access to the care that they want and the care that we professionally think that they might need. I think another interesting uh, consideration is just kind of the recovery language um, and, you know, the recovery subculture, 12-step culture, and just kind of the way we, that we describe recovery and addiction, even as treatment professionals, and how that can be a barrier too with labels, calling yourself an addict or alcoholic. Um, and so that's something I spend a lot of time thinking about is how how do we protect you know, the sanctity and beauty of what recovery is and the fact that if you're an, an, an alcoholic or an addict in recovery, like that's a beautiful thing that's unique and special to that population. That's right. But also recognizing that the general public doesn't see it that way. They don't get that. They don't understand what that means and they don't want to call themselves an alcoholic. Like that's something that becomes something that you can wear with pride once you're in recovery, not before. Um, and so- that's again for each organization to look at for themselves. But, you know, are we, you know, trying to get someone to admit something about themselves before they're ready or trying to expose them to something that's a little, you know, can be dogmatically fueled at times. Rigid. Um, rigid, whatever. And how is that a barrier? Because, you know, a lot of a lot of the times I'm working with the families. So, you know, it's important for that client to understand he has an addiction problem, but for that family, like that's not a first call conversation. Like the first call conversation is just about getting them some help and getting them plugged in. Um, and so how you position your services, how you describe them, you know, the programming maybe to an extent, you know, are those inclusive in a way that still feels, you know, like it's protecting what the recovery experience is, but are we a little bit too, um, rigid? This is an area that I'm very passionate about. It's like, is your organization therapeutically inclusive from as a function of theory? So a good therapist, as you know, is a good thinker. And therapy is not about getting good at one model and then just delivering that model dogmatically. Say you're a CBT therapist and all you do is CBT, right? I would offer that a good therapist is reflexive to the patient that's in front of them or the constellation, whether that's a family or a couple or an individual, to deliver services that might have the best mm, odds of success with them based on your individual way of being, right? And so really good graduate programs in psychology, whatever arm, whatever branch of the tree that whether you're a social worker or an MFT or an LPC, right, hopefully they're introducing you to a myriad of different theories and modalities that you can sort of reflexively equip yourself with based on the person that's within you. And I think organizations struggle with that. Legacy organizations in this field struggle with that. And here's an example. So 
Cumberland Heights Foundation was founded in 1966. Well, that was a little bit ago, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's a beautiful thing that we, as an organization, um, a, a mission-driven not-for-profit who's been in the Tennessee area for that long, 57 years, that we've been able to help people that experience addiction in this area and the, and the broader region. And, and we're very proud of that. But we've had to go through organizationally several little renaissance moments, right? Certainly computers were probably one of them that we were also weren't here for. <laughs> um, but the professionalization of psychology was another, right? Whether that was bachelor's level clinicians, LADAC here in Tennessee, or master's level clinician training. And I think that it's important because we celebrate recovery here in this organization and it's in it and we want to protect the sanctity of what that is, but we also want to provide the evidence-based treatments or empirically supported treatments, the evidence-based practices that we know best support people along any continuum of change. And it starts with our internal culture of saying, hey, the first time you talk to a patient, it is not our job to try to convince them that they need to be in recovery for the rest of their life on the first mm -hmm. day. It's probably not the most appropriate first step, right? It can be a part of helping them learn about what tools or coping mechanisms or practices that might best equip them in their life. But organizationally, we need, I think you're right, we need to get much better at meeting people where they are and introducing them to a series of different practices that might or might not help them along their journey of recovery. Sure. And I think, you know, it starts with just really knowing your mission and being clear about what it is you're trying to provide your community and then asking yourself, like, what is the best way to accomplish this mission? Right. And are we at times, you know, limiting ourselves because of our fixed beliefs or are we open-minded? And, you know, so are we following just psychological best practices at a basic level? And it's not um, mutually exclusive. No, of course like that's not. That's the moral yeah. of the story, yeah. Um, and I think that that, I don't know, I have so much respect for, you know, people that have been around a long time and organizations that have been around a long time that that makes me pause and say, if I have like a slightly unique idea, like I'll question it because, well, they've been doing it a long time and they do a good job. Um, but at the same time, we do need to evolve and innovate. And I've been working with young adult men in the first 90 days of their recovery every day for almost 15 years. And they have changed, you know, like to describe walking into an AA meeting and how hard that was to get a young person excited about 10 years ago. Imagine today, you know, like it's hard. And so we, and it's, and they will find their way to that if we make it um, inviting and, you know, attractive. And so that's not really our job, you know, like we just provide it and present it. And like you said, we can provide and, and present all types of other experiences um, or interventions, and none of that is mutually exclusive. And um, I, I think it's going to give us better outcomes, but it's over like over a bigger picture. It's going to give us more opportunity to help people enter recovery because they're, it's not going to feel like such a gigantic social barrier to change this whole part of my identity immediately. Like we put a lot of pressure on that. Um, mm, that's right. And I guess while we're on this soapbox, like so many people say they do provide, you know, pathways and individualized care and, and they just don't, you know, like they're kind of rigid and, and, um, I think an addiction treatment, like 
when you go to grad school, you find out like, um, you know, like it's mostly just about the therapeutic relationship. It's Mm -hmm. not really about the intervention. Confrontation is really not all that effective. Um, you know, some of these kind of basic concepts. So, you know, I think we need to be a little bit more willing to just kind of lean on, uh, providing services, focusing on the relationship, not having an agenda, um, and meeting people where they are and not being afraid of that as an approach. Harm reduction, even what I just said, like I get a little anxious talking about it because it feels like, well, what if it waters down recovery? What if it takes away from this experience? And then when I think about Alpha 180, like it's so recovery centric. Right. It's such a recovery experience. It is very 12 step involved, but it has so many elements. And those are just the elements of a healthy life. That's what I was about to ask you. Why? Right? Why is it so recovery centric? Because from the outside looking in, what are you teaching these these kids to do? How to show up early, how to stay late, how to ask for help, you know, how to start reflecting on their behavior, what we might consider is an inventory, right? Um it just makes me I just want to say like and I I don't I don't I'm not really super opinionated on this. I obviously have some opinions, but, but I I just think that it's important that we ask ourselves some of these difficult questions. And if you think about our society in general, like a lack of willingness to look at ourselves, a lack of willingness to ask people questions, to understand what their experience is like, to get to know each other. Um, and the kind of tribalism and extremism in our society is causing a tremendous amount of damage. And of all the people that should be really good at not doing that, it's the recovery world. And so we can be really caught up in, um, I don't know, kind of menial differences that to the general public don't really matter that much. Like we should be more concerned about making this lifestyle as attractive and inclusive and inviting as possible. And and an important place to start is to ask your patients, like, why don't you want to do that? Or what, what's bothering you about that? Or what's uncomfortable about that? Or what would you be willing to try? Um, and not being afraid, uh, of what unfolds. Right. Nico, what's your, I, so much of your personal experience is obviously informed by the business that you run today and the services you provide. And it's just a good, this conversation is a good reminder of where recovery really lies, you know? So thinking organizationally, you know, how we present information to patients and what we challenge them to think about and what we're asking them to do, whether that's attend groups or come to a residential facility or, or sign up to be, you know, uh, meeting with a therapist every week it is recovery, right? It, it's 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 recovery beyond the elements that uh, otherwise might be considered sort of traditional. And if you're fed that right on the beginning, can be quite dogmatic. You know, my favorite part of recovery. You've you've heard me talk about this all the time, right? But my 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 favorite part of recovery is it doesn't care what you think about it, right? I mean, certainly it matters your relationship to this practice that you might or might not be reflecting that you want to participate in. But, but what I really mean is recovery allows you to be wherever you're at and we defend your right, right? Broadly. I mean, I'm not in charge of recovery, just an example, as are you, but ideally the things that made us attracted to a recovery lifestyle were people saying, welcome, and we'll defend your right to believe in 
whatever it is that you believe in and, and you're welcome to, you know, and that reflexivity I think is a beautiful thing that our cultures really need to sit in and, and focus on outside of making sure the treatment plan gets done or making sure that we're hitting a certain number of meetings or whatever might fit in there in kind of that box. Another way of looking at it, because I think, you know, you immediately, like if you've worked with people in addiction, uh, early addiction treatment, you're like, yeah, but they need some rigidity. They need some structure. And so finding that balance is really difficult. But, you know, I think just being humble about, again, this goes back to kind of psychological, uh, like therapy training 101 of like, I'm not in charge of this person's outcome. Um, I'm just here at this moment, helping them as best I can in this moment. And I think specific to the population I work with, like a lot of times it is going to be just kind of an introduction to abstinence-based lifelong recovery. And what we are going for is just, you know, reduction in symptoms, improvement in quality of life, and those developmental milestones I was talking about earlier, like just helping them become a slightly healthier young man. Um, and allowing their identity as it relates to the labels and language of recovery to unfold as it may, because I'm really not going to influence that positively much. You know, like they're going to come to that by me making it look attractive, being a good model of recovery, showing them cool recovery experiences. It's not going to come from me telling them, making them, whatever. We can all agree on that. Um, But I think a lot of times our program development still tries to do that. So with this specific population that you're really experienced in, in assisting, can you speak to, Nico, or, or any observations you might have about the differences in treatment expectations between the individual patient and the family? It's always mm-hmm. an interesting dynamic, and I think one that is specifically highlighted in the emerging adult population. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um there's an array of expectations from the families. I mean, we have some that are very, have a lot of expectations, put a lot of pressure on us, put a lot of pressure on their kids and some that don't. I would say in line with the conversation we're having, uh, it's not so much about calling, saying I'm an addict and I have an addiction problem. A lot of times families are looking at it more through a mental health lens and are more comfortable, uh, saying that their kid has depression or anxiety or whatever the case may be. Um, So a parent just wants their kid to be happy, you know, like they just want, they want to have a good relationship with them where they can talk without getting in a fight and they want to be able to stand back and and know that kid is going to be safe. Like, um, you know, we say our, it's kind of an internal thing at alpha, but our deliverable to families is a good night's sleep. You know, like we're taking care of everything. Your kid's going to be fine. Um, and so I guess the challenge for us is kind of managing their expectations of what's realistic. I think a lot of times they want us to kind of fix everything all at once. Um, and those are kind of the more external measures, like whether go back to school, get a job, save money, et cetera. Those are all really important things. But the hard part is like the actual work we're doing is mostly identity based work. Like we're helping this person, uh, see themselves differently and s- fit in in the world differently and believe in themselves differently. And, and it's, you know, it's kind of big developmental milestone that everyone's trying to accomplish. So 
I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think the challenge as a provider can be like, we're over here trying to do this work that it's almost kind of spiritual, it's internal, it's, uh, you know, on this much longer arc, um, whereas families want, uh, you know, tangible kind of quick measures that tell them my kid is on track. My kid is, you know, checking the boxes that they're supposed to at this age and, and all that type of stuff. So, uh, yeah, managing expectations between those can be challenging. So this is something that's unique. Uh, sort of, I want to pivot a little bit, um, but because we're inundated in this field, I think we don't stop oftentimes and ask this question is, how have you changed? How has this challenged your recovery and your identity these last 15 years of being a behavioral health professional? That's a huge question. Uh, so for the most part, by like the easiest answer to give is it's provided me a life. Like I have... The identity of being a, you know, recovering person, a behavioral health professional, a, you know, growing leader, like all of those things have been really healthy things that I can take pride in and be proud of that, uh, like recovery gave me, you know, like mm. people that we've talked about today, you know, started making me feel like that long before um, I saw myself that way. And, you know, you and I, would stand in our kitchen in Lubbock in our apartment and talk about doing stuff like we do today, like mm. that we wanted to, you know, change treatment and help young people go to college, like all this stuff that um, we do in different ways today. So uh, by far the most impactful um, result of being a part of this, you know, choosing this career path and this lifestyle has been really positive. It has made me see myself I'm proud of myself. I'm, I'm proud of, um, being the example of recovery that I am, whatever that is to other people. So there's that, um, on the flip side, it's very challenging to remain grounded and to not, you know, to, to go the identity development process I've been talking about. I went through it like you did. I'm still going through it, you know, now I'm in my thirties, but went through my entire twenties, uh, doing this stuff. So, I think um, it made me really self-critical. Um, it made me really like uh, accomplishment-based to where, you know, in recovery, you're kind of like you're moving forward or you're moving backwards. And it, did you do that for healthy reasons or unhealthy reasons? And so I'm always like, well, I don't know. Like, why did I do that? And what is this fueled by? And is it okay? And am I doing the right things? And so I've exhausted myself with just kind of analyzing my own behavior and then I've also found it pretty difficult to just kind of relax. Like I feel like I need to be kind of working towards something at all times. Um, and then I think almost inevitably you're going to go through a period where you're, you know, kind of not about it. You're re- a little resentful towards the whole thing. You're like, man, I got sober so young. I missed out on, I've never partied like, you know, in college. I've never blah, 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 whatever the thing may be. Um and grieving that is so reasonable and legitimate. Like I did have some things taken because of being in recovery. Obviously I, you know, needed to be, um, but I needed to grieve that. And I needed, you know, I, st- I felt like I started talking to my friends, you know, they had seven, five, seven, ten 10 years sober and like everyone felt the same way, but like didn't want to talk about it. Cause they like felt shame about it. And, um, you know, my experience with that was, uh, 
never, like I never really left any, like I didn't, some people have to leave and come back. Like I never had to leave, mm-hmm. but I did have to, I feel like take a step back and, and start relating to my recovery in a different way. And again, it kind of relates to what we're talking about where I kind of see this more like old school attachment to recovery where it's very salient in your identity and very fixed. And mine has been you know, more fluid and it's been more salient at times and less so at times because I've added these aspects of my identity over these years, like being a dad, um, being a young professional, which is different from being a recovering young professional, um, Mm. being, you know, a husband. um, And I like those parts of my identity. Like I want them to be at the forefront. You know, I don't want Nico recovering heroin addict to be before Nico dad, you know? So Mm. I have started to like allow myself to hold that, you know, a little bit looser, like the recovery part. Um, and yeah, you run, and then you always go with whatever's not first is last. And it's like, dude, my whole life is surrounded by recovery. It's now become everything, you know, and it, and it's boiled down to living these principles and living this lifestyle and it, and it's second nature, but it's no longer something that, comes out of my mouth first or is the first topic of conversation. Um, anyways, so all of that has been a challenge. And the only the thing I'll say just cause it feels important is, uh, you know, just remaining ethically grounded over the years. Uh, we were talking about this at dinner last night, but you know, I have been afforded so many incredible opportunities and I find myself like in this moment in nice environments doing cool things and just always reminding myself where I came from and, and keeping things in perspective. Um, so, you know, allowing myself to grow while recognizing why (laughs) all of this is happening and, and what kind of the foundation of all of this being possible is. Yeah. You're not alone in that. You know, I think I, I appreciate you saying that and saying that on this platform, because I think there's many people that it's natural to go through. I've, I relate to many of the things that you talked about of like, wait a minute, like, I don't, my primary identity, should it be focused on Nick, the ex-opioid addict, right? Or should it be Nick, the dad, or Nick, the professional, or Nick, the neighbor? Right. right? That's what I was going to say. You like, know, it doesn't always have to be something you're accomplishing or doing. Just being And it's guy. only natural because we both got sober at 20. We're both 33, right? it's only natural to have gone through and we'll continue to go through some sort of evolution. And I'm just grateful that we can talk about it, that we can share about it, that we can name it. Because we've had this conversation. <laughs> we don't usually have this conversation with cameras in a studio, right? We've had this conversation many different times over the years. And so I just think that for folks that might be at any age of recovery and we're not experts or anything like that, like it's okay. You know, it's okay to be in those places and have those thoughts and sort of move the furniture around in the house a little bit and try to kind of um, just orient yourselves to what this lifestyle is really about. I think it's, I think it's uh, not a good secret to keep, but it's a secret that's kept is that everyone feels this way at a time. <laughs> and you start, you know, getting to know old timers and you find out they've got their messiness and, you know, had their periods. And uh, I think yeah. when you're early on, you just don't see it that way. You don't know that. I think that we were talking about this last night. You were, you know, as a friend, you know, one of my greatest friends in life, right? Sort of reminding me of my desire to do everything perfectly. 
And I think you were alluding to that a little bit in recovery, this hyper vigilance and awareness of your behavior and your actions and your reactions that sometimes can block you from the experience of needing to be angry mm-hmm. or maybe needing to be sad instead of this very measured, well, what's the right way to do this, right? Because I have some assignment that it needs to be perfectly situated. That there is a right way. There's a healthy and right way and there's an unhealthy and wrong way. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and I'm just kind of also reminded the broader your base, as we would say in some, in some groups associated with recovery, the broader your base of recovery, the higher your point of freedom. You know, and recovery is lived outside of meetings. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I hope that that's another, I hope we see the recovery world grow yeah. uh, w- w- with COVID, with what we were talking about, with kind of the stigma reducing around accessing mental health care, private practice, all that stuff. Um, you know, I live in Austin, Texas. It's a pretty, you know, active, like wellness based community. Um and I'm hopeful. I just think that if we're, as an industry, uh, you know, making ourselves attractive and keeping up with best practices or technology, you know, um, that we can be in a position to help people when they're ready to change their lifestyle and whatever that looks like. It can look lots of different ways. And, you know, I just boil it down to the principles. Like I, I want my clients, I really want them to experience recovery the way I did but I don't care if they do that. You know, like what I really want more is for them to just have a, a good quality of life because they are typical, they're individuals that are in pain and they're struggling. And a lot of times I recognize and see their pain and can't reach them. And so how can we do better with that? It's as simple as that. Um, and yeah, I, I, I want to be hopeful that, uh, that we're going to get better at that over time as an industry and that society is, um, you know, more open than ever to that conversation. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Thanks Thank for you. being here. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. This was fun. A new studio in an old place. <laughs> it's cool.